Now, I'm going to continue uh, the series on fear today, picking it up in the book of Daniel. Uh, we are dealing, once we get to the book of Daniel, uh, undeniably in end-time events. Now, the scriptures we've been reading in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, once we got into the prophets out of, out of the Genesis and Exodus and so on, these have to do specifically with end-time prophecies. Well, even Deuteronomy and some of those do as well. But when you really understand, the whole Bible is written for the church and for us here upon whom the ends of the world comes. But even the most cynical, I suppose, Bible student has to admit that when you get to Daniel, it's a book that was not even opened to be understood until the end. So there's no way of denying that Daniel is an end-time book, and much of Daniel, or some of Daniel at least, still has not been fully opened to understanding. There's some areas there that we still are looking at and wondering just how will that happen or what form will it take. So when we get into this book, we're talking about fears of the world and fears upon the people of God, which shall come to pass. Some of the things that occurred, happened to Daniel, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to others of the Jews in their day. And they will be have another end-time fulfillment, I am quite sure. But some of the events he was told to seal up, and not even you are going to understand, until the time of the end. So what we are dealing with and Daniel is a book about uproar in the world. It is a book starting out with Babylon and the God's people being in the middle of Babylon in captivity to that system. And the Babylonian or satanic system is still around the world today. And the leader of Babylon, I firmly believe, is the United States of America the one which we would term, if we were to define it, Babylon, because the Bible gets specific in prophecies in Revelation and in Jeremiah 50, 51, 52, in other places, gets very specific about some of the uh, definitions of Babylon. And when you look at those definitions, as we did when we went through the series on Babylon, there is only one nation on earth today that they could possibly apply to. God is that specific. So we are living in Babylon today, not only in terms of the worldwide system of Satan, but in that nation that is the end-time Babylon that Daniel spoke of. So the things we read here are not just historical things of the Old Testament in the past, but they're very real and alive. Now, we know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other Jews were taken captive, and Daniel was brought to prominence because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream. I have no doubt that God's people are going to be in contact with rub shoulders with the leaders of this world. 
That is very clear in many other scriptures. But the past is precedent for the future. And God works in patterns. He has always done this. He did it with Joseph. He did it with Moses, with Daniel, with uh, John the Baptist and Herod. And in each case, they had not only a confrontation, perhaps, but they also had a working relationship. And God's people were put over the nations, the kingdoms, in one form or another. And I find that very interesting. I don't know how that might apply here at the end and what way. But since that's God's pattern, I would not be surprised at all to see something occur that would put the church and the faithful part of the church in particular in conduct, in contact in some way with the government and the powers that be. I won't try to get specific on that because I don't know. But that is a precedent we can look at. And that's what we're looking at here. Anyway, some of the Chaldeans did not like that Daniel had been brought into good favor and grace of the king, so they came and accused the Jews. I'm in Daniel 3 here, and they said, King, didn't you make an image? It's interesting that Daniel pointed out to Nebuchadnezzar that the true God of heaven was there, and Nebuchadnezzar recognized that and saw that Daniel's God was a God, and yet he made an image of himself. Because God, the true God, revealed through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar that he was a great and mighty king and that had a, and had a, would have, did have and would have a great kingdom with power, strength, and glory, as it says in uh, verse 37 of chapter 2. So instead of repenting and worshiping the true God, he says, well, you've, what, what, Daniel said and what Nebuchadnezzar heard were two different things. Have you ever noticed that when you talk to someone, sometimes what you say and what they perceive are two different things altogether. We do that with each other continually. So he heard there is a great God who gave us the answers. And then he heard, you're a great king. And then that's basically all he heard as far as what he did. So he decided he would make a great image of himself, how great he was. So the Jews had this used against them by the Chaldeans, particularly Daniel. Now wait a minute, I'm, as I'm saying Daniel, I'm, we're, we're not there yet. I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they said, these guys won't bow down worship your image. And you know the story. They brought them out. Why don't you fall down and worship the image? Well, we worship the true God of heaven. You've heard of him. And we won't do that. Well, what if I decide to throw you in the fire? We still won't do that. So he began to build a fire. It angered him greatly. Heated it seven times hotter than usual. And he knew how hot it would be, so he got the strongest men in his army to come and throw those three fellows into that fire. Now, 
What do you think was going through the minds of those three men facing that danger and watching them stoke the fire hotter and hotter and hotter? Now, they'd said, either God will save us or we're going to die. They just told the king that. We are willing to die for our God. But you have to know that their stomachs were in an uproar. They were probably standing quite a way back, but could feel the flames getting more intense as the fire got hotter because they were front and center, and they were the ones to be thrown in. I'm sure great fear gnawed inside them. I mean, you may have made a commitment that you will serve God, but that does not mean that your human emotion goes away. The feelings, the emotions, the natural fear of death that is in a human being took hold of them. And it's written here for you and me. Some of God's people are going to face this kind of thing. I don't know that it will be exactly this, but this kind of thing. Where they will have to give their lives for the eternal God of heaven and earth. We have to be preparing ourselves ahead of time to be ready in case we are called. We can't put names to this, can we? Not for the most part. We know a couple of individuals who will, it's already been said, they specifically will die. But for the rest, it's a little more general. So we need to be preparing to put God first in our lives no matter what. If we are prepared and we have the proper fear of God, and their fear of God was greater than their fear of Nebuchadnezzar in the fire. That's the bottom line. Fear rose in their throats like bile. But the bottom line was they loved and feared and were in awe of God and knew of his promises and that this physical life is only transitory, temporal, ends fast, but there's something greater beyond. And I'll prove that to you, probably not today, but next time. They understood that. They knew that. So they were prepared to give their lives. Now that is a New Testament teaching of Christ, which we'll get to as well. So this isn't just old stuff. This is stuff Christ warned about as well. Now, I think it is important and imperative that we face these issues today. That we get firmly in mind that terrible times are coming and that we need to be as prepared as possible in our relationship with our Father in Heaven to withstand if our number is called. Because it could be. We just don't know that. So I'm not going to try to get too specific here. I'm not going to try to read into the future exactly what conditions might occur or exactly when they might occur. That is not the major reason to study these scriptures and prophecy in general. 
I remarked the other day to someone that probably at least 90% of those people who are interested in prophecy study it from the standpoint of exactly how will things happen and when, particularly when. That is their hot button. That's what they're interested in in terms of prophecy. Very, very few look at prophecy from the standpoint of what's wrong with me, what do I need to change so that God will protect me, God will guide me through it, that I might fulfill some purpose in his plan and his will as things go forward. In other words, people miss the message of prophecy because they're interested in the specifics of time and place. Now, time and place are, are somewhat important, but the message to each of us far overrides that. I know we, as a group, have been accused of staking our, or formulating our religion just on prophecy. That is not true by any measure. We look at prophecy because we're in the time that these things are beginning to happen, but you very well know that we spend more time talking about our conduct and how we ought to react than we do about specifics of time and place. Because that's what God brings these things on us for, is to fix our conduct, our Christian living, if you will. The whole Bible is prophecy, and the whole Bible is Christian living. They are in, entwined together in such a way that they cannot be separated. So it doesn't make any difference whether we're studying Deuteronomy or Daniel or Luke. We're studying prophecy and Christian living. Now these three guys were really put on the fire, <laughs> to use the expression, front burner in terms of Christian conduct, Christian living, putting God first in their lives. Now I submit that they must have been praying to their God, serving their God from day to day, week to week and month to month in their lives because they were put to a huge test. And God says, does he not? He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. That is a statement from God. It is a promise from God. It is a prophecy, if you will, from God. We fear because we don't know that we would be capable of standing up against a fire or whatever form of persecution or punishment be put upon us. But rest assured, if you obey God and make the right choices in your daily life, the little things, the attitudes, the thinking process, the activities, the service, all the things that God put in the Scripture for us to do, if you were working at and faithfully following those day by day, God has said, you are preparing yourself for any big test that might come upon you. So our preparation isn't 
oh my, I heard they're going to start bombing tomorrow. I better get close to God. Well, maybe you need to get closer, but the real test is have you been building that relationship over the past weeks, months, and years? That's where the real test comes. Well, these guys had been doing that. And when the big test came, they were ready for it, and then they were thrown in the fiery furnace, and Christ was right in there walking with them. I see four, Nebuchadnezzar said. We only threw three in. So hot it killed the strongest men he had that threw them in there. Now this is in time we're talking about. God with us. Emmanuel. God was with them and even appeared in the fire with them. Now when they came out, their eyebrows weren't even singed, their clothes did not even smell of smoke. That is incredible. God suspended some natural laws by absolute miracle. I have found that I can go over here and throw wood in this stove across from the hall, and I don't have to get in there and, and uh, thrash around. All I have to do is open it and have the smoke come out, and I go back in the house and you stink. You smell like smoke. It happens. When that comes boiling out of there, when you open the door, it just happens. It's a natural thing. Smoke is carried by air, and air moves over you, and you stink. Nothing you can do about it. Well, I mean, you can go shower and change clothes, but I mean, you can't stop the process because it's natural law. God can suspend those things. He has that power. He can make the earth go backward 15 degrees. He can do anything he wishes. His spiritual law is far above physical law, and he is above it. And somewhere in there, and I don't know that much physics, somewhere in there they're combined. Where physical and spirit and atoms and molecules and everything come together. I don't necessarily try to understand all the nuances of that. I don't need to. I know that I'm flesh, and I hope to be changed to spirit. And what the exact difference is, I don't really care at the moment, as long as it happens. Now, if somebody's really bright and that interests them, they can go into it, but even there they have to be careful because they're going into something that is very difficult to comprehend and may lead them astray and into all kinds of wild theories. So those things are to be approached with a certain trepidation. Just understand that if we trust God who is spirit, we can become spirit. That's all we need to know. So how he suspended those laws and how he caused this to happen, I don't know, but they came out, King even remarked, you don't even smell like smoke. You're not singed. Wow. And then he promoted them. And then he said, interestingly, I will not let anyone throughout my kingdom ever speak against these fellows' God. 
or they themselves will become dunghills. Now he wasn't going re- to repent and obey that God, but he was willing to recognize that there was a powerful God there and that he was not to be talked against throughout the kingdom. It made quite an impression on him. Let's notice chapter 3, verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Now we know that the Babylonian system is going to require us to accept a different God than the one we know. We will be among the only people on the earth, a very small group, who actually know, understand, and have a relationship with the true God. The whole Christian world is worshiping the wrong God and do not even know it. They're worshiping a God who appears as an angel of light but is the most evil being in the universe and they have no clue whom it is that they worship. Satan is a great deceiver. Now God is going to prove that he is God. He proved it to Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? And we've read many, many scriptures which show that God is going to show that he is God. That is going to be the main purpose of all these end-time events. And we see the story picked up right here, don't we? You see, the whole world is worshiping Satan, the God of this world. Now, in order to set up the kingdom of God, people have to come to understand the difference. And they don't know the difference. There are people all around us who say they worship Christ, who say they are the Latter-day Saints, if you will. And they have not a clue who the Latter-day Saints are. And they have no clue who the true God of the universe is. They think they know, but they worship Satan and do not even know it. Now, there are those in the earth, on the earth, and some of them are leaders of nations, who openly, among themselves at least, worship Satan outright. They're not totally deceived, in other words. They know who it is that they worship. But Christ told the Jews, the Pharisees, the so-called leaders who supposedly knew the true God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, that they worshiped you know not what. He told them outright, you who think you worship the God of Moses worship the devil. Now that's pretty strong language. But if the Pharisees who were in the line of Judah, whose forebears had known the true God, if there was anyone on earth that you would suspect knew the true God, it would have been them. But Christ told them they worshipped the devil. 
Now, if they do, and still do, where does that leave Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, Hindus, and Shintoists? Not a chance they know the true God. God's going to make it clear. Do you realize how privileged you, sitting right here today, or on the telephone line, are among the people that God has called in this end time, primarily under Herbert Armstrong. And most of them have now departed. But of those who remain, do we even begin to grasp the importance of what we know? And the concept that we alone on the face of the earth, even have a clue who God is. To set up a world-ruling kingdom, the world has to um, come to understand that concept. The difference between Satan and God. That became blurred in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? And it has become even more blurred given time and experience of mankind. You are among the most blessed people on the face of this earth. We may have our trials and our troubles and our frustrations, but let us not forget who we are. And that God is preparing us. And how does he prepare people? He prepares them through trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, we have often, over the decades, said maybe there would be a tough transition time from the slavery to this world to the freedom of following God. And we've used the Israelites coming out of Egypt as the example and how they suffered the first few plagues. So the transition for them was difficult. And they even had their attitudes tested as to who this Moses was because they saw all these promises of deliverance and then they saw the Egyptians being punished with plagues and them too. If you expect the transition from where we are today into God's blessing to come without some growing pains, some transitional difficulties, I think you're betting on something that may not be. I think we must expect that we will suffer along with this nation and this world, because some of God's people are scattered around the world, to some degree before deliverance comes. Just because we're the people of God does not mean we will not be put in trying and fearful circumstances, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. Maybe not that intense, but aren't we already beginning to suffer with them? Employment is high in this country. Economic difficulties are upon us. 
And they are going to get worse and worse and worse until the whole system comes down. Now, how much of that will, be, will we be obliged to go through? Some of it I know because we're already beginning to suffer some of it. Some of us are having trouble finding jobs or finding jobs that actually give you enough to live on and to pay the bills. We're already there. God did not deliver us two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, did he? Partially. He let us begin to come out of the middle of it and to get separate where things will be better and where there's opportunity for deliverance. But even yet, we are going to suffer some of it. We might as well adjust our attitudes and know that that is going to happen, be prepared for it, do all we can to get close to God and to know and to believe the promises that we will be delivered. Now, all I can do with me and with you is read the stories of Moses the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which we went through in a series not long ago, where it says that we should be turning our hearts to our fathers. Moses was one of them. Read those stories. Understand what those people went through, and understand that in the end time, conditions are going to be worse than they've ever been on the face of the earth. So when Moses came and told those people, as they were slaves in Israel, I have come here to deliver you. I have come here to show you a way to get out of this and into a place where you'll have freedom and liberty and be able to worship God. And they said, which God? Because they had lost track of who the real God was. Just as our nation today will wonder, which God? The things that are going to happen are not going to sound like the Jesus that they know. Because the Jesus they know is not the true Christ. It's a deception of Satan. Now those Israelites suffered. Here came news that things were going to get better. <clears throat> Remember that song, things are going to get a little better in the morning? Work my fingers to the bone, what do I get? Bony fingers? Things got worse for them. Now they didn't have straw for their bricks. They had to make the same amount of bricks. God promised deliverance, sent someone to help get them out of there, and things got worse. Now, when that happens, isn't it natural, normal, and human to say, hey, wait a minute, here's somebody telling us things are going to get better, and the more he talks, the worse it gets. How long will this go on? Is this guy talking sense, or is this stupid? It doesn't seem to be matching what I'm seeing. Promises, promises, promises. 
and everything's getting worse. And then not only did they have to work harder with less opportunity to make good bricks, but then the Egyptians started having plagues, and they had the same plagues. You know, I bet they began to question Moses, a lot of them. I bet they began to say, this guy's nuts. He's on their side. He grew up in Pharaoh's court. He killed an Egyptian and ran. What can he do? Here he comes back 40 years later and says, I'm going to take you out of here. Yeah, right. Sure looks like it. What was it, the first four plagues they went through? That would have begun to, have begun to shake a lot of people. Who is this Moses? Now we can come today and start reading about a people that must build the temple of God. We can read scriptures about how God is going to protect his people in the wilderness. And we can see those things in there. We can read the promises of Isaiah, and they sound so exciting. And it's about the people in the latter days, not the millennium. And then things get worse. The job situation gets worse. Health gets worse. This gets worse. That gets worse. So we could begin to question the scriptures. We could begin to question God himself. And boy, if we're going to question anybody, it could be Daryl Henson. Because he's the one that's reading these to us and interpreting them in a certain way. Now, I'm not Moses, and I'm not trying to make that comparison. All I'm saying is we need to go back and read and understand the story and realize that some of these things that happened in the past are going to happen again. And the things probably will get worse for us, just like they are the rest of the world, until... God sees fit to make a difference. And we need to wait patiently because didn't he do what he said he would? Did those Israelites who questioned God, whoever that was, they said which God, but Moses particularly because he was there as a representative of God, so they questioned him not knowing the true God. And they said this isn't going to be. Why do I have lice in my bed? Or whichever plagues hit them, I'm not going there. But didn't it happen? Didn't it happen? Didn't they march out of there? And didn't they find peace in the desert? Well, that is much as, as much peace as they could have because they still even having gone through the Red Sea, seen Pharaoh's army destroyed in the sea, they still doubted God. And their butts laid out in the desert before it was over, dead. And their children went into the promised land. Do we have any question why God keeps questioning Israel as a backsliding heifer in Hosea and other places? 
how hard it is for us to accept what God says and trust Him and not fear everything around us. They feared Pharaoh, they feared thirst, they feared hunger, they feared all kinds of things as they came out of Egypt. And God did not automatically give them everything they wanted exactly when they wanted it on purpose to teach them something they were not willing to learn. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Are we willing to learn? Have we learned anything from our forefathers? It doesn't necessarily make us any better than them, brethren, but their lives, their experiences, their trials, their troubles, were written as examples to us, Paul says in Corinthians. For examples to us, as he put it, upon whom the ends of the world are come. What I'm saying is, let us not give up, let us not become impatient, let us not begin to question God or these scriptures he's written because it will happen. It did then. And even then they had trouble accepting it. Even then they had trouble putting their trust in God. You would have thought that they would have had leaps of faith just in going out and crossing the sea and seeing Pharaoh destroyed. And having seen the difference that God made when suddenly the plague stopped on them and continued with the Egyptians. And when all the Egyptians' firstborn died and theirs under the blood lived. There were some incredible things that happened. Incredible differences that God made. And yet they still had trouble trusting and believing. Is it any coincidence with the experience that God and Christ have had with Israel in the past and mankind in general. But Christ would be moved to say, I find faith on earth when I return. Do you realize how precious a commodity trust in God is? We're physical human beings. And we respond to physical danger with fear, with trepidation, and sometimes with failure. God does not want you and me to fail. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and have it implanted deeply in our minds and emotions that there is a true God who can deliver. The alternative is pretty nasty. If you accept the rule of the beast, the false prophet, Satan, you're going to die anyway. And you'll not have another life, eternal life. 
He who seeks to save his life will lose it, and who is willing to lose it will save it. These guys were willing to lose it before Christ ever even made that statement. They understood. They put God first. They swallowed a great, huge lump of fear that came in their throats and said, I will put God first, O King. And you can throw me in the fire if you want to. And he did. And they walked out. Because God was going to show old Neb who God was. Now God is going to show this world through you. What is your name? Who are you? I am talking right now to people that I believe God is going to use to show that he is God. He uses people to prove that. He did it here. He will do it again. He did it in the Apostles' day, through them, through Stephen. He will do it again. Now, it's not James, Peter, John, Stephen, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Isaac, whose number is coming up. It's yours and mine. Our numbers are coming up. We are going to be called upon, just as these people were, to prove who God is. Are we ready? Get set. Someday, the go sign is going to be given. God is preparing a people, and you were among them. I'm not saying it's exclusive to us here. Don't get me wrong. Those who might hear this tape somewhere. God is, God is working with a faithful people among those who have been called around the world. And he's going to gather a spiritual people together to do a physical job. We'll get to that here. Are we going to make it today? I don't know. But it's us. It's the ones he's called now and the ones he's choosing. Now, do you realize what an honor, what a glory, what a calling this is? We get bogged down in our lives and our attitudes and our needs and our weaknesses and our faults and our uh, vanities and lusts and covetousness and all the things that beset human beings. And it's hard to keep our minds focused and understand. But of all the people on earth today who can help the people of this earth to come to know their God, to know who he is, what he is able to accomplish, and to ultimately save them from themselves and Satan, we're the ones who are called 
perform that service for our neighbors around the world. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Is it the one that lives next door or three doors away or in the next town or the next county or the next nation or around the world? They are all our neighbors. And if we are called to salvation now, then we are also called to help them understand who God is and to help usher in salvation for them. Maybe down the line, but the first thing they got to learn is who is God. Now he used Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel to show Nebuchadnezzar who God was. And then Nebuchadnezzar gave credit to that God. So he became aware of whose God was God, but he never repented. And we're going to experience the same thing today. We are going to be set aside to show who God is. And they'll recognize, but they will not repent. So the seven last plagues ultimately will come upon them. And they will be humbled. And it's sad that it has to be that way. I see people through the day, through the week, here and there, out in the world, in town, who seem like genuinely nice people. They're friendly. They'll joke with you. They're, they're just people. They have their difficulties and their problems. And sometimes my heart goes out to someone I see who just has a problem. You can, it's obvious they have problems they just can't handle, whether it's health issues or money issues or relationships with their relatives or whatever. Some way their story kind of will come out if you visit with them. And you'd like to give them some answers, but you know anything you said, and they wouldn't comprehend it whatsoever. All you can do is be friendly with them and, and wish. Doesn't Jeremiah, I think it's 51, say, if we could help this country, we would? I don't want to see America fall apart and all its people destroyed, go through hell on earth. But it has to happen because that's the only way God can get their attention. And then he has to have a few that he set aside to show that he can and will bless so they can see the contrast of the God they're worshiping, ultimately with the mark of the beast, and the true God. We are his witnesses that he is God. Isaiah 42, 43. All of us. But not very many. <clears throat> Only a 10% remnant of what was the church will God select for this important job. And even among the greater church today, you are among the very few that even begin to understand the concept. 
even of those who still claim to follow God. It's downright scary. Now, the positive side of it is that God will protect those who are faithful and are a part of that remnant, and he will bless them just like people will be blessed in the millennium so that people can see the contrast. The promised millennium on earth that the new world order is going to try to issue in is going to turn sour and spoil. God's few are going to be blessed and changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And that will be the final incredible testimony of who the true God is. Now we need to be a light in the meantime, but then we need to be there at that resurrection, don't we? That completes the job. That shows who the true God is in no uncertain terms. And when we come back a year later with Christ to the Mount of Olives to set up his kingdom, the world will finally understand who God is and they will humbly begin to repent and come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that's what's in your future. If you will submit and believe God, and not be ruled by human fears, human needs, human panic, but will set those aside and fear God and worship Him and trust Him. Remember what we read in Isaiah 8 a few weeks ago? Neither fear you their fear. Are fearful things coming? Yes. Horrible things are coming down the pike. But don't fear their fear. A lot of Americans are beginning to understand that the American dream is fast becoming the American nightmare. They're beginning, some of them, to truly fear and panic. And the number of people you talk to just indiscriminately here and there in society are beginning to wake up to the fact that we are in serious trouble in this country. And even the polls, Democratic, Republican, you name it, are beginning to show that fear. People are restive, they're concerned, they're worried, fearful. We know an answer. We know a way out. When will that deliverance come? Tomorrow? Maybe, maybe not. How much will we have to go through with them? before God makes a difference. I do not know. How far did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to go with them before God made a difference? <coughs> well, they didn't actually have to be threatened only. <coughs> they had to be bound and thrown in the fire before God made a difference. How far will he go with us? I don't know. How far did he go with Abraham and Isaac? Pack the ass with wood, ride up into the mountains, find a stone, 
put the wood on it, tie his son to it, draw his knife, and prepare to cut his son's throat, actually raising the knife and maybe getting ready to start the downswing to sever Isaac's windpipe and artery. And God said, wait. Thank you. Relief flooded through Abraham. I expect it did Isaac also. It may have been that Abraham would not have been able to light the fire. The altar would have been wet. Isaac was scared. He may have wet his pants about then. He was human. He was scared. But he submitted to his father on earth and his father in heaven. What an incredible story. And God did not deliver until the point of death. Why would you stand in awe and respect to God if he delivered you before trouble ever came? You wouldn't attribute it to God. You'd just think you had good luck if it had even gotten that bad. But when God lets it get so bad, and then he delivers, the contrast is quite obvious. And we learn the lesson. And it helps us trust God. Sometimes with help, he may let us come to the very point of death. I've seen it happen. And then heal. If you don't get to a critical point, then why would you attribute it to God? I guess I really wasn't that sick, and I got over it, whatever it was. If there's a test, it has to be something that's difficult. I loved one of my history teachers in the seventh grade. He would give you all the answers before he ever gave you the test. If you had any memory at all, you could go down and read the answers, and then he would hand you the test. He put the answers away and wrote them down. Easiest class I ever had. I don't know that I learned more than I did in some others. But if God's going to put us to the test, it has to be enough of a test so that he and we learn something. We grow from it. It's not going to be a piece of cake to the world. It is a hard lesson. And to one degree or another, to a certain point, it's not going to be a piece of cake for us. Now, I hope we don't have to go through too much. But we may. We may. We need to be prepared. Daniel 6, you know the next story. 
I tried to get here before I got here. But Daniel was put in the same circumstances. In this case, instead of a fiery furnace, it was a den of lions. Now, Daniel had a good relationship with the king. And his accusers wormed around, spoke behind his back, and got him in trouble to the king inadvertently. The king didn't know what was coming. So they maneuvered to get him in trouble. And then the king said, well, that's the law. This was Darius, not Nebuchadnezzar. I have to do what I said I would do. So he told him, go throw Daniel in the lion's den. And then he stayed up fasting, didn't have music brought in, and tried to figure out a way that he could save Daniel. He got up real early and went to the lion's den and said, Hey, Daniel, you down there? Yeah, I'm here. What'd you expect? <laughs> Darius thought enough of Daniel that he at least went to check to see, you know, how many bones were left. God had to save Daniel. See? Not just to Nebuchadnezzar, but now to Darius, God used Daniel to show who God was. But Daniel's God wasn't just some figment of the imagination or a piece of stone or wood carved a certain way, but it was an all-powerful God who actually could deliver. And that was recognized. Daniel was given greater responsibility and power. And his enemies were punished. Now that's the way it's going to be with us. We will face some tough things coming down. But we will be delivered if we're faithful and true and put God first. We are to fear God, not man. You see... We all have fear. We've said that several times. It's only human. It's only natural to be afraid when there is danger. God made us as human beings and we understand danger. So fearful or being afraid or scared half to death is normal and natural. We have to take that natural fear and transform it from a human fear only to a fear and trust in God that is greater than our fear of physical things. That's a transition we have to make. <clears throat> These examples in here are to help us accomplish that. The world uses these as bedtime stories to Make the kids feel good about stories of deliverance. That's not all they are. It's for God's children to understand there is a God who can deliver and will. The only question is, as it has always been, do we trust him? Adam and Eve had a certain trust of God. And then some being came along and said, oh, that's not the way it is. Here's the way it is. They did not have enough fear of God, and they did the wrong thing, following the wrong influence. 
and we've done it ever since. Israel has done it ever since. We are here to change the approach. Now, we are not the first. Christ called his disciples who became apostles and others into the church to start the process. And I've gone there years ago with the story of Stephen and how he stood up and how the father and the son probably stood up on their throne and cheered when Stephen saw it through. Because it was by the power of the Spirit that that happened. And it opened the door for any Christian. Now the difference between that and Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, and, and those of the Old Testament, is that those were specific individuals to whom knowledge and opportunity of eternal salvation was given. It was not given to Israel as a whole. Only promise of physical blessing and physical life. But with those few, they understood a better resurrection as delineated in Hebrews 11. They understood a future. And God delivered them that future. Now it's still held in abeyance until the resurrection. But they understood about it. But it wasn't opened up to you and to me, to the church as a whole. It was a few patriarchs and prophets who were given that opportunity. Now in the New Testament, a new covenant was given. A heart to understand God. A heart to trust God. A spirit of God put within us. And that's what Stephen called on. That's what fishermen and tax collectors came to stand for and on common average people, worse than average people. Tax collectors were looked down upon as the lowest scum of the earth, kind of like you and I look at the IRS. I will hasten to add, we pay our taxes, but they do not have authority to do what they do, and they use wrong methods to do what they do, but we are told their face is on it like Caesar's was, so we pay them. So we're not in rebellion in that way. That's not the point I'm making. But we're not great, are we? See, here's the root of the reason God called the weak in the face to confound the wise. He has opened up salvation to people like us, who are nothing. Even among men, we are nothing. We're not the smartest. We're not the best trained. We're not the most loving and compassionate. We're not the most anything except scum of the earth. On purpose. So that God shows by His Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal, these things shall be done. So He's called us from what we have been 
to become something he has in mind. You're just you. I'm just me. We don't amount to anything. Don't be discouraged by that because God is here to transform us. He is here to take a tax collector, a fisherman, a carpenter, a motel maid, you name it, and turn them into a James, a Peter, a John, a Stephen. That's what you're here for. To show to an unbelieving generation that God is God. That is a challenge. And not only is it a challenge, you've been called to do it. Let's move forward a little bit because there's an example here I want to use in the light of what I just said. There's a couple of things in between. Hosea 3, verse 4, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. A, a, a bad time is coming, God says. Hosea is an end-time book. So he says difficulties will come, there will not be leadership, just as we've not had leadership in the church. Herbert Armstrong was our leader. He had problems. He died. The church had problems, and it's dying. But some are going to live, and God is going to provide leadership again for the church. Because it says in verse 5, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the eternal their God, and David their king, and shall fear the eternal and his goodness in the latter days. Now is this talking about the millennium when David, the original king, is going to be resurrected? No. Now that comes later for the people of the earth who survive, but it's talking about in the latter days, God is going to send proper leadership like David was, a modern David, if you will, to bring us to these uh, answers to this situation. We'll fear the eternal and his goodness in the latter days. We're going to suffer a certain amount. We're going to go through without leadership for a while. Things are going to get tough. Afterward, when things get really tough, people will begin to see God, and God will provide leadership to get us in the right place so that God can bless us. That's what's coming down. That's why he says, don't fear the world and what they're planning on doing. Fear me, because I have answers for you. Everything's positive if we just trust God. That's all we have to do. I say, that's all. That's tough. It's hard to do especially when you see trouble coming. Joel, in time book, talks about the day of the Lord all the way through. Joel 2, let's get to verse 21. He's talking about all these terrible things that are coming in Joel 1, leading down to this. He says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the eternal will do great things. 
Now that sounds maybe like something Moses might have said to Israel. You're in slavery. Don't fear. God's going to do great things. He's going to deliver you. And then the plagues start. And they say, oh, wait a minute. You must be misinterpreting. You sure it was God? Which God sent you? Well, these are in time prophecies for right now. Don't fear. God will do great things. You know what? I'm inclined to believe that. And he gives us all these great things he's going to do through all these books at the end time in the latter days. Now, if you believe it, and you trust him to do it, and you believe that God really is God, and you know him, and are getting to know him better, then he will use you to show your neighbors around the world that he is God. We can help. We can make a difference. I read all the time about people who says, well, I know things are getting bad. Things are terrible in our country. They're going to get worse. But what can we do? And they have no answer, really. Vote for different people, someone will say. You know, or march on Washington and wave a flag. Or, you know, they got things that won't work. We know the only thing that will work is if this people will recognize who God is, repent, fall on their face, and humble themselves before Almighty God, then God will save them in the kingdom of God and the great white throne judgment. And he's called us as forerunners, as witnesses, that this is true. God is sending a sign to this world. Now, doesn't he say that in Isaiah 7? He told Asa, ask me a sign. Asa said, well, I'm not going to do that. God said, I'm going to give you one anyway. Emmanuel will come. And Ephraim will be destroyed within 65 years. And it's a prophecy for today. I don't know when the 65 years start. I have my guesses, but I don't know. It's going to happen. This nation is going to be destroyed. But Emmanuel the King will save us. We are his witnesses. He is going to give a sign to this world. And it's going to be a people that are set aside, that trust him and obey him and will not worship the beast. And he will bless them beyond understanding and grasp. And you are the ones he's called as the front runners to come ahead and prepare a place for those people to come. We've got to get it prepared and ready. That's what we're here for. I believe that. With all my heart, I would not be where I am today doing what I'm doing. And you, as individuals, are called here to do that. It's an incredible calling of God to establish something for his use, for the use of his people, and to be a witness that God is God to the whole world.
Now there's something we can do that will help our neighbors. There is something positive that God has called us here to do to help show the world the true God. What greater calling could you have? What more majestic thing could you be called to do than to honor the great God of creation and help the world see who he is? We have a magnificent calling. Let's grasp and understand that and live as if it were true. Because things may look pretty cloudy and pretty turbulent for a while yet, and we may go through more of what this world is going to suffer, but it will make the blessing and the deliverance all the sweeter when it actually happens. When even we might begin to doubt and we haven't gone through nothing, have we? We're so rotten, spoiled, that we think if we can't have an iPhone, the world is coming to an end, or whatever it is that we might want, because we're not making the kind of money that we would like to make. But there's nobody here starving. We're not going to starve. We may go without power, electricity, but that's the way the world lived for nearly 6,000 years. Abraham never had a light bulb. Do we realize that? He never had a phone. He never had a cell phone he could walk around and use. He never had a car. He never had a television even. Can you imagine that? There are people still alive and walking on this earth today who remember when there was no television, when there were no automobiles, there were no airplanes of any kind. There are very few now. And they're very old. But it is within the life experience of a few people on this earth today. I know of a woman right in Utah, this woman in the U.S. of supposedly 117 years of age. She was a teenager when the first airplane flew in North Carolina. She knew about horseless carriages, and now she has a jet airplane. Corporate private jet she flies on, the 117. Go get them, pilot! We are spoiled absolutely rotten. Do we understand that? And yet when some of these goo-gaws start going away, we are going to feel so depressed. Come on. What are we willing to give up for God? Our cell phone? Our TV? Our car? Electricity? None of the people for the first resurrection except this end time generation ever had any of that stuff. 
But we would feel so disappointed if God allowed that stuff to be taken away from us. So we cling to it. And we're trying, even here, called out of Babylon into the wilderness, we still have the mindset of trying to maintain what we know is going away. And how, when it's taken away from the world, can we still have it? Instead of getting ready spiritually and in the right way, sometimes there is a temptation with the knowledge we have to misuse that and try to say how we can make American dream or the American dream last three months or six months or two years longer than when it's taken away from the rest of America. It's the wrong approach. We need to be getting ready to go back to the vine and the fig tree, to go back to living and being self-sufficient and putting aside these things of the world, and as they go away, say, too bad, that's gone, that's gone. We have God and he has promised to take care of us, and he let us know ahead so that we could learn to trust him and to learn how to grow food. We can get on Farmville on our fancy little computers and our googaws that we have today that no one ever had, and we can waste hours and hours and hours, and I'm not condemning anybody that has a farm on Farmville. Please. But would the time not sometimes maybe be better spent learning about the soil? We've been given at least an acre here, maybe more. Could we learn how to make this soil productive? Could we learn how to get it watered right? Could we learn how to milk a cow? Could we learn how to shovel real manure instead of punching our mouths? Could we live real life instead of vicarious life? Could we come to grips with the kind of life that God intended people to live and live a real life instead of a fantasy life? Think about it. We are so tied in with the electronics you know, sit on your butt and do nothing but look at a screen and move stuff around instead of living real life. And God has given us every opportunity to do that. Wouldn't it be better to do the real thing and put our time and energy in? If you want to search on a computer, why not search on the soil that's right here and what you need to do to make it productive? you got a Farmville. But you'd rather sit in the house and move things around on a computer screen. Which is living and which is not. Now, I'm opening a can of worms. I understand that, maybe. And I know that we have to work. And we can't just farm our acres. There's, there's a lot. How did I get over here? That goes into that.
But let's think about what God brought us out here to do. Prepare a place that people might live and thrive and have food to eat when the rest of the world is not. We have an opportunity to make a difference here, to prepare for others to survive. Now, I was going to get to one story, and maybe I will very quickly here, because it ties in very well with what we're doing. There was one fellow by the name of Jonah. And God was going to use Jonah for a particular purpose that God had in mind. He was ready to destroy Israel, and he had promised that Assyria, the Ninevite, would be used to punish Israel. And Jonah knew those prophecies. And God told Jonah, you go to Nineveh and you warn that city that they need to repent and I will bless them. If they don't repent, I will destroy them. So Jonah gets to thinking and he says, well, I don't want to go do that because if they don't repent, God will destroy them and then they can't punish Israel. So he thought he had a pretty sharp idea there. I'm not going to go do that. I'll let God destroy Nineveh. And then my friends and relatives in Israel are safe. It was skewed thinking, but that's the way his mind worked. So he ran from God. God had called him for a purpose. And he ran from that. You know, we can run for any number of reasons from something God may have called us to do. So he got on a boat and said, I'm, I'm buying passage out of here. I'm on the next train. Well, boat in that day. We would say next plane now. I'm on the next plane out of here. Well, the waves came up. And he told those guys on the boat, he says, I'm running from God. He said, man, he told me to do something, and I don't want to do it. I'm out of here. So then the storm came, and they were worried, and they cast lots, and it came down that it was Jonah that was the problem. And he said, yep, I'm the problem. God's upset with me because I ran from him, and I wouldn't do what he said. So throw me overboard, and everything will be okay. And they said, oh, no, we won't do that. So they prayed, and they talked to their gods and whatever they did, and it didn't get any better. So finally they just gave Jonah the heave-ho. Out of here, Jonah. You're right. Sea's calm. Everything's great. Now, God knew what Jonah was going to do all the while. And he prepared this great fish, and when Jonah's head went under the water, blurb, he got swallowed, and God had made it where he could breathe in there. And the slime and the digestive juices probably worked on him, because when he came out of there, he was a white man. Real white, like the blouse I see back there. Not just a pale face like Anglo-Saxons are, but apparently really white according to past history stories. Scary white. But God said, no, you're not going to run from me. Now, I think God has called us for a purpose here. Maybe a little different purpose than he has some others in the church. They have their own view of what their calling is. But we have a view of the scriptures that God has given us to understand, that by understanding, by God having opened your mind to it, it becomes a calling because you're responsible for that which you know. Herbert Armstrong always told us that. 
If you know it, you're responsible to do it. So God has revealed to a few what some of the things he is going to do at the end to. And if you see that, and you understand that, then you have a calling from God to do what it is that you have come to understand. It isn't good enough to have the academic knowledge in your head. God opened your mind to understand it, and the very fact of opening that created a calling. Follow me? The ones who don't understand it can't do it. The only ones who can do it are the ones who understand it. And therefore, if he opened your understanding to it, he fully intended you to do it. You may not have had him sit on your shoulder or tell, him in a direct, tell you in a direct way, maybe like Jonah, but the very fact that your mind came open and you grasped and understood created a calling. Now, if for any reason you run from that and don't see it through and finish it out, God may have a fish prepared for you. Or something prepared for you equally as scary. That's the way God works. For you and me, there is no way out. We have been called to do something. Next week we'll get into what that is and the fear that goes with it. Now when Jonah had sloshed around in there for three days, he cried uncle, or he cried God, and he got spit out on the beach. And you know where he headed for? He headed for Nineveh. And he was ready to tell them to repent. And they did. And it didn't last long, and God used them to destroy Israel anyway. But God gives a warning. God gives a chance, a space to repent. And God being God... He gave the pagan, Gentile, Ninevites, the Assyrians, that opportunity. Thank God he is God. But Jonah didn't grasp how loving, how kind God is. And how he is not a respecter of persons and causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, and that being God, he would be willing to give Nineveh a chance. And he is going to have a witness at the end of this age to give the world a chance to repent, but they won't. And we have been called to set an example and build a village and villages and a temple to show that God is God and give them that witness. Now, are we Abraham? Are we Moses? Are we Shadrach, Meshach, Daniel? Are we Jonah?
we have a call. Love to it. 